Now, Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We always want to just quiet our hearts before you, to acknowledge the presence of the Holy Spirit, the one who opens our eyes to spiritual truths contained in your God-breathed word. And so we ask for that help. Lord, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. We want to understand so that we can be a blessing to you, live blessed lives, and bless others as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Came across a rather sad story in the news about two con artists who caused a lot of pain and suffering. I'll read a little of the article to you, Santa Fe. Two brothers who befriended an elderly Edgewood couple and stole $440,000 of their life savings in a real estate investment scheme have been indicted on several felony charges. The Santa Fe grand jury late Thursday returned indictments on 18 felony counts each for each brother, including racketeering, conspiracy, securities fraud, forgery, and money laundering. Quote, it's always painful when it turns out that a trusted family friend is not who he represents himself to be. It becomes a tragedy when you entrust your life savings to such individuals and they betray your trust, said one of the investigators. Well, it all began when one of the brothers was dating this elderly couple's granddaughter, recognized the opportunity, the couple was wealthy, had some money, and their vulnerability, and so over two years they worked to gain their trust. Uh, the men used all the money, not surprisingly, for their own personal gain to enrich themselves, living lavishly, while the elderly couple is now facing the future bankrupt. There's a similar pattern with scam artists. The motive, greed. The method, deception. Results, personal loss for the victim and consequences. Here, judgment. The evil men were apprehended, indicted, tried in a court of law, stood before a judge to answer for their crimes, and then they were sentenced. Precisely Peter's point this morning, but the apostle is not speaking about secular frauds, people who swindle you out of your finances. No, he's speaking to you about people who swindle you out of sound faith. And so these spiritual frauds, these scam artists with Bibles in their hands who stand behind pulpits, who wear black robes and represent God, who say prayers, and use phrases that come from scripture. They're called false teachers, motives, greed, method, deception, results, great personal loss. To those who put their trust in them and believe the lies, it's a lot worse than physical loss because we're talking about spiritual truths and they are eternal. 
And so Peter, in his efforts here in this chapter to uh, warn us about dangerous spiritual pretenders, he really wants to encourage his Christian uh, readers. Maybe they were overwhelmed. These false teachers and the false doctrine that they were spreading was doing a lot of harm, causing huge problems. So Peter is going to say in this paragraph in a rather fiery way that keep resisting them, keep fighting for the truth. Don't worry, these guys aren't getting anywhere. Judgment day is coming and it's not going to be pretty. So he's trying to encourage Christians with the onslaught being surrounded by false principles, false philosophies, demonic concepts that will take somebody to hell. He's trying to encourage them because it seemed like the bad guys were winning. And so Peter's going to reach into the bag and bring out hell, fire, and brimstone. Now, whenever I meet new people in the lobby <laughs> and I know what's coming, I always just kind of cringe inside. It's like, oh, welcome. And they say, it's our very first time. I'm like, oh, uh, how do you feel about fire and brimstone? <laughs> uh, well, in Calvary chapels and in this church, we go through the scriptures. You've already heard that verse by verse. And when there's mention of hell and fire and brimstone, which there is, we talk about it. In this case, can I just give you a heads up? He's not talking about you. He's talking about these bad guys, these spiritual frauds. And so, phew, I mean, when you're hearing this, don't be thinking, oh, hellfire brimstone. It's, well, you know, it's, it's about somebody else, a destiny for those who reject the truth, who love falsehood who exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the created thing rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I just quoted from Romans chapter 1. And so just a heads up on this. Peter is just trying to encourage the, the feeble Christians who are barely hanging on while the false teachers' churches are growing <laughs> And the apostles are being imprisoned, and the truth is becoming unpopular. He's saying, hey, God knows how to handle the bad guys, and God knows how to handle and rescue the good guys. And so with that, uh, we are going to dive into the text uh, the rather intense passage, as I keep telling you, it, it promises for a very lively discussion afterwards, um, probably in your cars on the way out of here. Uh, ver and, and, and so I do hope you had a very good breakfast. How many of you had a good breakfast? Uh-oh. <laughs> All right. How many of you just had a bagel outside in the lobby? There you go. All right, so here's the context, so you're, you don't get shocked because he's going to go to the Old Testament and he's going to bring up hellfire, all right? Now, here's the context. He just described these wicked men who are selling their souls for a little bit of money. He sees the sheep coming, and instead of feeding the sheep, they're fleecing the sheep. They're telling them, hey, it's okay, you can do this, you can do that, the other thing, and sending them, patting them on the backs and just kind of going, we got another one, cha-ching. In light of who they are, so devious and treacherous and evil, now he says the following. 
verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Now, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. And this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Well, let's pause there because I believe we probably have enough to talk about this morning. Uh, one simple thought, I already alluded to it. Here's the overarching theme of, by the way, one sentence in the Greek. One long sentence. And here's what he's saying. Chill out, relax. Don't look with eyes of sight. Look with eyes of faith. God's got a handle on the bad guys. And God is going to see the good guys who are living by the truth and counting the cost and picking up their cross and staying true to the word of God, he will see you through. He knows how to see you through and he knows how to judge them. So everybody, just take a big breath and relax. And that's kind of uh, what he's talking about. Let's look at it, really kind of walk through it. It kind of divides easily. There are three examples. So we're going to go walking through the three examples. And then the fourth idea will be the conclusion. Verses 9 and 10 is really nice. It's kind of an uplifter. So we look forward to the uplifting at the end. Amen. Now let's look at this verse, these verses, I should say, before even we get to the sinning angels who the Bible say get a one-way ticket to the bottom floor, uh, before we look into that and understand what that means, the big picture that God has a handle on the bad guys, um, Psalm 89, verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So really, I hear the psalmist saying, you know, justice is God's middle name. It may not appear so out in the world with delayed judgment and all. If you judge by appearances, you wouldn't understand that. But this is a just universe because the one who spun it into existence is just himself. Nobody will get away with anything, and that is kind of the motivation here. Now, what, why is Peter, I want to look at his motivation before we dive in. His motivation is so strong to bring up hellfire and brimstone. He's saying, if this is true, if that is true, if this is true, if that is true, then. Why does he need to convince them so strongly and use hellfire and brimstone to do it? His motivation, I believe, number one, would be they're unconvinced. 
The Christians are looking around and they're uh, overwhelmed. They're looking around and they're saying, uh, excuse me, but the church is being split. Because some false teacher came in and said, oh, you know what the Bible really means and what Paul really said and who Jesus Christ truly is? He's really actually an angel. You know, entire churches were being split. Pastors were being arrested. Families were being upset because of these false teachers. They were being turned upside down. Young people who just came out of sexual immorality were falling back in because these false teachers, as we're going to see, was, were, was, were using grace as a license to indulge in the sinful nature. And so if you're looking with eyes of sight, which we are commanded in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, not to do, Christians walk not by sight, but by faith. But if you start walking by sight, which they were doing, they're saying, listen, these false guys are winning. Fastest growing church in the United States, as I told you last week, is being pastored or has been pastored by a man who says there's no such thing as hell. Fastest growing church. The largest church in the United States is pastored by a man who says the primary thrust of the gospel is see your financial need, stake a claim on it in scripture, and speak it into existence, which is not the gospel message. And so people look around and they say, excuse me, fastest growing church in America, hip, cool, young, trendy, fresh ideas, largest church in America, 45,000, fills a stadium. Um, I'm a little shaken here. One guy's telling me, hey, you don't have to believe in hell. The other guy's saying, you know what? God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Fastest growing, largest church. One could get a little unsettled. So Peter reaches into the Old Testament and say, excuse me, let me tell you about the judgment for false teachers, false ideas that will take you straight out of God's will and into, in some cases, worst case scenarios, uh, eternal loss. If you believe a lie, if you're told you can be saved by doing good things, which is an absolute and utter lie, Jesus died for those of us who can't do good things, which is the entire world for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. If you tell somebody, hey, just be good enough, at the end they will stand there condemned because they said, hey, I come to you with my good works. And he says, I came to you with a gospel that said, your good works are but filthy rags. The only goodness comes from Jesus Christ, and it's a gifted goodness to those who put their trust in him. So Paul, uh, Peter rather, has to come up with this uh, really intense, convincing, look, they're not going to win. Well, where is God? Why is he letting all of this happen? Psalm 73, Asaph, he said, that thought was almost my entire undoing. He says, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had envied the arrogant. I almost lost my foothold when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
The bad guys scoffing, they speak with malice in their arrogance, their mouth lays claim to heaven. I'm reading from Psalm 73. They say in their hearts, God doesn't see any of this. The Lord is clueless. I'm getting away with murder. I can live as I please. And then he reaches this false conclusion, which almost undoes him. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocent all that to say he's saying, all this hard work to walk upright is a waste of time. Here I am, denying self, picking up cross and following, and I am in hardship. I've got trials. And here are the, them, they're indulging their sinful nature. They're, they don't have a cross anywhere near them. They're not following Jesus, and they're blessed. Where is God? What is going on? He says, when I considered this, I was oppressed, the psalmist said. And then he does what Peter is going to do for you and me. He's going to take you to an eternal perspective of the end. He says, the psalmist says, then I went to church, the sanctuary, and I considered their end. It says, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? He goes, okay, I get it. It's about the end so much. I mean, sometimes in this life, you get to see a little bit of God dealing with people, but mostly at the end. It will be at the end that we see the fulfillment of God judging every deed. He said, let me assure you, every careless word that men have uttered, they will give an account of to me. Every careless word out of everybody's mouth, those who are not atoned for, because we're covered. He who calls on the name of the Lord shall be never put to shame. Therefore, that promise is not for us. Our careless words have been covered. We've taken the payment plan of Jesus Christ. But he says, otherwise, oh, no, no, no. Every thought of a man's secret heart, every single one of them will be judged. So that's what Peter's trying to say is, wake up, people. Don't you be thinking, oh, look at them. God does, it's very, very dangerous to accuse, even in your thought, that God is uninterested when people are doing the wrong thing, that God is somehow passively removed when evil is going down. It is a dangerous thought. It is a slam against his character. It is a slam against the word of God, and it sets you up for spiritual deception. So suddenly you are in the critic seat about God. Excuse me, look around. You let this happen, why'd you let this happen? The good guy is losing, the bad guy is winning. Where are you in all of this? Job had a big test, and yet the Bible says of Job, he never sinned by accusing God of wrongdoing. You see? So these Christians, they're just kind of stuck the Gnostics have moved in. They're taking over false teachers, false Jewish teachers, and the, and the little churches are just diminished. And Peter says, hold on. God always gets his men. Hang in there. And 
Peter's second motivation, I just think that he goes to hellfire in these three uh, examples because he's, he wants to instill in these Christians the fear of God. These Gnostic teachers are saying, you can have your cake and eat it too. God wants you to be happy, happy, happy. Nothing matters how you live in your body. It's all about knowledge and your spirit. But what you do in your body doesn't count. And so... Uh, Peter's saying, oh no, we got to sober you up because we don't want you enticed by false teaching, which the whole point of false teaching is to deceive you, and the whole point of deceiving you is to use something that allures you and is attractive sounding and makes sense to your human understanding and appeals to your sinful nature to gratify you. So of course the heresy is going to be attractive, who doesn't want to say there's no such thing as hell or that I can have a relationship with God and be sexually immoral? Those are two wonderful sounding truths to sinners like you and me. But he says, watch yourself. Let me just bring up Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of what God thinks about sexual immorality gone wild. So, you know... <laughs> Let's not blame Peter. Let's look at the situation and see Peter saying, uh, I've got some saving to do here. I've got some Christians who are wobbling. I've got some false teachers who are all around doing their thing, and I'm going to break out the smelling salts and put them under that Christian's nose and go... Oh, wow, yeah, straight ahead, steady as she goes. And so there are three examples here. Let's take a look at the first one. Exhibit A, he says, look, if the angels, when they sinned against God, were held accountable, he sent them into the dark abyss where they await final judgment, dot, dot, dot. So the first example, verse 4, is something that's a little obscure, but uh, theologians and commentators have kind of a, a reasonable explanation of what he's talking about here. The angels who have sinned, who have been confined to Hades right now, seems to be a reference to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, in the pre-flood days. Satan knew from the garden that from one of us humans, a woman, from a woman, his conqueror would come. The Lord told him, uh, you had fun here with destroying the woman? By the way, P.S., through a woman, your head will be crushed. I will come through the womb of one of these girls. One of her daughters will bear me into the world, and my work, I will, you will be crushed. So Satan, all through the Old Testament, is trying to break the godly chain to stop the messianic nation from forming so Messiah could be birthed. And so the commentators say that the fallen angels, which are called demons, in verses 1 through 4 of Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God went into the daughters of men cohabitated, that demons manifested themselves in human likeness and procreated with human women and produced these freakish beings called Nephilim. And it says that the only inclination of their heart was evil all the time. 
And you, one could hear, as one commentator said, Satan saying to God, oh, bring your Israel and your Messiah through a virgin womb into this. And you have a world filled with these freakish giants, as the Bible calls them. And some commentators say that even the animals got tweaked during that time in a demonic way. So we have the dinosaurs and all of that pre-flood days. It's just a conjecture. It doesn't have to be the absolute thing that happened. Just some ideas there. Now, these particular beings uh, were judged by God and judge, judged to the abyss. So it says that some demons are allowed to roam freely. But the ones that caused this particular catastrophe and brought an end to an entire civilization, he says, oh, no, 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 no. That will never happen again. You all that caused that now down to a place called Tartarus in the Greek. Your NIV has hell. It technically should be Hades. It's the place of the departed. It's the nether world below. And uh, the Bible says that these spirits were chained. The, the point of the passage is God judged those who did that nasty deed by restricting the scope of the evil angel's activity as the result of sin. Hades is that place where all the wicked dead, those who die in their sins, they descend into. Um, it is not hell literally, it is a place of torment, but that place is pre-Revelation chapter 20, final judgment. At the end of the age, according to Revelation chapter 20, everybody in Hades, all the dead wicked, from Cain and the angels alike, will be resurrected, stand the final judgment, and then receive sentencing and eternal condemnation then is classified as literal hell. And so unfortunately, there is a, a truth that nobody wants to talk about, but everybody should want to avoid. Amen? Amen. So when a believer dies, their sins are covered, they've been regenerated, they've been born again. Jesus said that part of you can never die. You enter into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you die in your sins, unregenerated, not born again, but only born once, then you descend into Hades, where you await final judging at the end of the age. Moving on. <laughs> Exhibit B. A rebellious world underwater. Verse 5, if you're interested in the Noah and the flood account, it's chapter 6 uh, through chapters 8 of Genesis. So once the angelic cause of the corruption of the world was dealt with, now it's time to deal with the human rebels. So your text says, and what about the ancient world? Folks, they didn't get a free pass either. Godless people were swept away in a great flood that God sent. Very sad words in Genesis 6 that says, the Lord speaking, my heart was filled with pain and grieved that I ever made man. 
He said in Genesis 6, he surveyed the place and found that man's inclination of his heart was only evil all of the time, as I had mentioned. But there was a little light in that pre-flood world. His name is Noah, and he preached, he proclaimed, as he built the very thing that would save them, an ark with an open door, and said, repent of your evil. Put your faith in Yahweh. Come through the door and have life. Not much has changed with the gospel. And men loved darkness rather than light and didn't listen to him. But the, the, the bringing up of Noah really emphasizes one thing. In a world of perhaps a billion, estimate, eight people were saved. That's his point. Peter's already told you in his first letter, this uh, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people ate in all. Do you hear that? He's saying, well, let me read a quote from my favorite commentator, Douglas Moo. Somebody asked me how to spell Moo, and guess how you spell it? M-M-O-O. <laughs> all right, let me read this. This is a good one. The false teachers were attracting quite a following. Christians were a small enough community as it was. Some of Peter's readers may be discouraged about that, but they need to remember that the godly are often the few and that God is always faithful to preserve them. And so they were looking around and saying, hey, you know what? Let's just call him Apollos, even though Apollos was a good guy in the Bible. Uh, Apollos comes in. He's a Gnostic teacher. And he's got 500 people. And we have a little house church. And the other guy across town, he's exploding and people and finances are going in and we can barely come up with a loaf of bread for our love agape meal. He's saying, excuse me, but in an entire world, only eight people were saved. Jesus himself, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few enter in. He said, make sure you enter through the narrow gate, because broad is the way, and wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many go that way. So the point of referencing that really is to help them understand, look, eight people here? How about two entire cities? When the Lord is pressed, hey, Lord, from Abraham, are you going to really torch that place? Seriously? What if there are 10 righteous people there? The Lord said, you know what? For 10, I will, I'll spare the whole two cities. Then he says, Lord, excuse me for thinking I could talk to the living God and not be incinerated. Uh, let, me, let me say again, uh, how about if there were nine? And the Lord says, oh, Abraham, look, if there's nine who have a right relationship with me, I'll spare both cities. Then he says, sorry that I'm going on and on like this, and please don't get mad because you're God and I'm not, but let's say there were eight, and he plays the scheme all the way down to do. He says, look, folks, it's Lot and his small little family in two cities. It's Noah and seven other people in a whole world. Get used to that. It hasn't changed. 
How many Christians are at your work? It's you and some other lady. <laughs> it's you and Mabel. Seriously. All my classes, 10 years of teaching at a secular college in the Bay Area. And I evangelized those classes. I knew who was who, every last one of them, for 10 years. One, two Christians in my classes at the most. Never more. Never more than two. Never. I don't remember ever having a class filled with 25 to 30 students with more than two or three Christians. Never. Get used to it. Don't be so shocked. It's a biblical reality. Don't be overwhelmed. It's just a fact of life. So he goes on, it's no surprise to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> I'm not chuckling, I'm just like, whoa, how can we get worse than that? Or more heavy than that, and then Sodom and Gomorrah's next. Well, <laughs> it, it's not too surprising that Peter's going to reach down and pull up Sodom and Gomorrah as well. And you'll see why, it's really a good choice. Very good choice, and you'll see why. Both the great flood that destroyed the ancient world along with the fire that uh, rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah were prototypes of the end of the world which the Lord Jesus warned would precede his coming. Jesus himself, a quote from our Lord Jesus Christ, just like it was back in the day of Noah, it'll be that way again in the days when the Son of God is revealed. People were eating and drinking and marrying and having engagement parties and all of that up until the very day Noah and his family went inside the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus speaking, and it was the same in the, in the days of Lot. People were eating, drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus saying, just so you know, we're using these two examples to let you know that that's what it's going to be like at the end. A big surprise, a big delay, people not prepared, having engagement parties, going to work, being at a, at a table eating up until the last second, and boom, it comes. Why does Jesus bring that up? Is he a big meanie bossing people around? Or is he a compassionate God, which he is the Lord God, in a human body, trying to warn people of ever experiencing that kind of judgment? He said, it says rather in 2 Peter Chapter 3, God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 4, God, our Savior, wants all men and women to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I love Ezekiel 33, 11, which I quote all the time to you guys. 
As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I do not take delight in the death of the wicked. He goes on to say, I take no pleasure in their death, but rather that they turn from their wicked ways and live. Then it says, turn, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die when you don't have to? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, the reason the Lord has to break out the smelling salts is because human beings so love the dark and so love their own autonomous lifestyle and love sin more than God. He has to say, is it worth eternal damnation? Let's just put it right out there. Because some people come at the height of the pinnacle of their careers, but it's very rare. Most people come because they felt a little bit of the heat. The tail feathers were on fire. They smelled something burning. They realized, ooh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it? Oh, suddenly, dear Savior in heaven, I bow my knees before thee. Please extinguish the flames. That's what it takes. Even then, even then, it's hard to walk with God because every cell in a fallen human being wants to go astray. Every cell in your body that's not covered by the Holy Spirit wants to commit mutiny and do its own thing, as you all well know. And so, the, the day there comes, the days mentioned now are the days of Sodom. Here's the paraphrase. Don't forget about Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities reduced to ashes. God made them examples of what is going to happen to the ungodly who live filthy and lawless lives. The account is in Genesis 19, the infamous scene. According to the Old Testament, God destroys both cities because of the grievous sin, that's a quote, Genesis 18, by, quote, raining down sulfur on them. The King James Version has brimstone. Um, that is the place that we get the catchphrase, fire and brimstone, that it comes from this passage and three others like it. If you're interested, Psalm 11:6. Ezekiel 38, 22, and Revelation 8, verse 17. Uh, fire and brimstone are used by the Bible to describe God's wrath on unrepented evil and sin. We use that phrase to describe certain kind of preaching that kind of gets stuck on the fire and brimstone part. Uh, let me read a great quote about having a balance because getting stuck on fire and brimstone is a real disservice to the scriptures and to people of God, which is what this quote says. Preaching that overemphasizes God's judgment and minimizes his love, and those who emphasize God's love and compassion but minimize his holiness and wrath are equally in balance and do a disservice to God's listeners and an injustice to the scriptures. It's the whole counsel of God that we need, God's love, 
and his holiness, God's mercy and his judgment, the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell. We cannot cut and paste the scriptures. We just take them as a whole. We take the hell, fire, and brimstone. We understand this is God's wrath, a justice against evil. I, I don't want to serve a God that doesn't want to annihilate evil. His goodness necessitates wrath against wrong and dark and evil wickedness. He's a good God. So in his goodness and in his love, which has a moral component to it, he says, I will destroy that thing. Nothing impure will ever enter into the gates of eternal life, he says. But neither do we just stay and harp on that all day long until we get this image of God holding a lightning bolt just ready to zap somebody who steps out of line. So we need both sides. And, and here's the reason he brought up Sodom and Gomorrah. The Gnostics are the primary bad boys of the New Testament false teachers. And here's Gnosticism from the Greek word knowledge. And here's what they said. The Bible says they slipped into Christian circles and they started preaching like Apollos and Paul and Peter, but only they were heretics. They were Gnostics. And here's what the Gnostics taught. Everything about the physical world is irrelevant because it's going to pass away, including your bodies. Your bodies are bad. Everything's temporal. They're going, going to die. What only matters is your spirit and the special enlightenment called knowledge, thus uh, Gnosticism, all right? So you can be enlightened in your spirit and do whatever you want with your body. That was their teaching. So Peter has to go to Sodom and Gomorrah and bring it up because a picture is worth a thousand words. So he brings that up and he says, hey, next time someone bozo gets up behind a pulpit and says you know god is love and that's all we need and and do no harm and you're two consenting adults and who are you hurting you're in love with one another it's okay and look at half of the world is already legalized in any way you're in the minority you narrow-minded bigoted hate monger he says he says I'm just going to mention one example of two cities known for abandoning themselves to sexual immorality. Now, if you're going to argue with me what you're about to lose, if you're going to, <laughs> if you're going to argue with me about what sin it was that caused the problem and the sulfur to come down, then Jude is going to have you at verse 4 when he says, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you Christians. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for sexual immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. And goes on to mention that the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were about sexual perversion and immorality, and that was the problem. It goes on, it's right there in Jude. Now, listen, the gospel came to Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is 
verse 9 through 11. And whosoever doing whatsoever were getting saved. And he makes a list. He says, don't be deceived, by the way, and he has to say this, Paul, 1 Corinthians 6, because the Gnostics are now on the platform saying, hey, you know what? You got saved, you got enlightened. It doesn't really matter what you do in the body. It, you call it sin, I don't, it's the human condition. It's all going to pass away. Your body's going to die. No problem. So gospel comes to Corinth, and Paul has to say, don't be deceived. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he makes a list of people who got saved out of Corinth. And he says, uh, adulterers, sexually immoral people, thieves, drunkards, homosexuals. The list goes on. It's a long list. He's already said fornication, which means a male and a woman having sex without marriage. It's in the same list. There's no big underline under certain of them right? Scam artists, greedy, and idolaters. And he says, don't be deceived. You live that lifestyle. You will not go to heaven because they were saying, oh, it's okay. But he says, and love this, love this. And that is what some of you were. You used to be in this list, but now you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I'm quoting to you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. You come out of the list, you still struggle with everybody who came out of that list in every category, they have an old nature and they struggle. It is not a sin to struggle. It is not a sin to be tempted. You can come out of any lifestyle, which everybody does, including homosexuality, and limp along in the right direction in faith, not embracing the sin. We're picking up our crosses. We're following him, all of us together in our corporate brokenness, no matter what flavor brokenness you have. And so the gospel came in. These young men were no longer male prostitutes was in the list or homosexuals. Did they struggle afterwards? Yeah, I'm sure they did. We had a ministry in San Francisco where uh, men and women were coming out of the lifestyle and living Christian lives. And I told that to somebody. And they said, they pulled me aside and said, Pastor Ross, do they still struggle with it? And I said, uh, only as much as you struggle with sin. So few, probably not at all, huh? It's not a sin to be tempted. And, 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 and can I go down a bunny trail, please? I really want to hop down this one. Listen, please do not tell me any sin. Well, I was really born this way. When eternal life, the prerequisite for going to heaven, is being born again. So it is irrelevant, the condition of your first birth. The first birth doesn't matter because you can't get into heaven on the first birth. So whatever you say came with the first birth 
is out of the question irrelevant and immaterial because Jesus said no one will get to heaven unless you are born again from above. New life comes in. The old is gone. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It doesn't mean you don't have thoughts or feelings. People don't choose their feelings. They choose to act on their feelings. And that's where the Bible says, I will give you the Holy Spirit to live a new life. I don't expect the old person to suddenly do this new Christian thing, but because of the new life, the Holy Spirit's power is in you. You will be transformed. You will not be that old person. Now, we have a ministry for former, as the Bible calls it, drunkards. We call it alcoholism. I am all for that ministry because people who come out of life-besetting sin patterns sometimes need a little help. And please, if you want to quote, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, you're a new creation, old things are gone, you don't have to even deal with it, you're not an ex-whatever. Try telling that to somebody who has an addiction. They need a little help in their cocoon with the new wings coming and the new life. They need a little support. I'm all for that. Some people come out of a lifestyle, whether it's sexual addiction or alcohol or drugs, and in one second, boom, it's done. They never want to talk about it again. They don't need the groups and their two thumbs down on any of that. That's fine for you. But not everybody is as strong or blessed as you, my friend. And, and there, we are blessed to be able to come alongside with the Bible and say, we're going to help you limp along in the right direction. Because in the end, God said, you will stand because I will make you able to stand. Amen? Amen. Oh, I feel so much better now. <laughs> do you know what it's like, Kevin, that all crammed in your head? Why do you think I went bald for it just burned out all my hair cells. Unbelievable. All right, now, moving on to the conclusion, the happy ending, all right? Verses 9 through 10, don't look at it because I'm paraphrasing. You can look at it if you want, but, you know, I can just hear you, don't tell me what to do. All right. If God was able to save Noah and his family who are stuck in the middle of this evil world, and see them through the worldwide flood. If he managed to get Lot and his family out of Sodom in one piece, without even a hint or smell of smoke on their garments, then know this, God won't have any issue bringing you through. He knows how to rescue his own people from their troubles, and he knows how to deal with his enemies. He knows the difference between us and them, and he makes a distinction. All right, following up now with some uh, encouragement. Um, not only did God rescue these families who were walking with him, but think about it. He sustained them in their time of having to deal with that godlessness. And so Noah finds grace, <laughs> as I kind of alluded to already, uh, all by himself, all by himself. The next time you feel that way, just remember the same God that took a man and said, I'm going to let you stay true to your convictions despite an entire 
world against you. And he did. He's a hero. The same God who caused Noah to be sustained in his troubles and his mockings and his persecution will be with you. Lot, on the other hand, and we're wrapping up now, Lot is just as encouraging, if not more, because Lot, my friend, to call Lot righteous is a bit of a stretch, <laughs> all right? And here's what the word righteous means. Righteous, nine times out of ten in the scriptures, means right with God. It's a gifted placement, all right? And so when the Bible says Lot maintained his relationship with God, he was a believer, that's what it means. And as a believer, he was grieved in his heart at what he saw and heard. However, not grieved enough to do something about it. Because two times it says that Lot went to Sodom knowing how exceedingly wicked it was. There was something about Sodom. The fast-paced city life, the lights, the action that he liked. He was troubled by it. But he was weak and morally compromised. I really like the Greek, which hardly anyone notices uh, in commentaries. Um, the Greek for being tormented in his righteous soul, the Greek is beautiful because it's in that what they call an active voice. The active voice reads exactly like this in the Greek. Lot tormented his righteous soul. It's just a little hint that says, by the way, yes, he was grieved, but it was mostly his own doing, you see? And I love that little thing. I mean, we don't have to go too far with it, but it is in the active voice, and it does read exactly that way. And we do see Uncle Abraham coming in and saving that sorry boy's life. <laughs> Saving his life. What's so funny? <laughs> you guys have the problem there. Um, saved him. And where does he go back? He goes straight right back there. And he ends, boy, they, he ends in a cave with his daughters and there's some wine. And it's not pretty. And then the Moabites are born out of that. So to tell me, as the Bible does, say, hey, he's righteous. That's a relief to me and to you because we are as morally weak in some ways as Lot. And listen to the little kicker at the end. Commentators and theologians for years have seen Lot as a type of, of New Testament church that gets raptured. The last day church is said to be very weak and compromised, but righteous because they are right with God through faith. No works. Now, what happens to Lot? The angel says, come on, man, let's go. And he's hesitating, of course. And he says, I cannot do a thing until you are safely at your destination. So let's go. When he goes and he's at his destination, then the fire falls. And Jesus says, as it was with Lot, so it will be when the Son of God is revealed. Next breath, 
Two will be in a bed, one goes, one stays. Two will be working at work at a mill, one goes, one stays. So commentators say, got it. As in the days of Lot, Lot goes, judgment falls. Christian goes, church removed, Holy Spirit who is restraining the evil one removed, judgment falls. End of the world, Armageddon, great tribulation. Paul to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. For by the word of the Lord I declare to you that we who are alive and remain till the coming of the Lord shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We who are alive and at the time of the coming, there it is again. He says, surprise, Christian church gone. Now judgment falls. What, uh, you know, you don't have to be saved. Uh, you don't have to believe that to be saved. But it is a very compelling argument uh, for Jesus linking the one person going and the one person staying to the days of Lot. Check it out, Luke chapter 19. I'm not making it up. And then Paul the apostle saying, therefore, encourage one another because Jesus saves us, quote, from the wrath to come. The word for wrath is never used of hell in that verse. He saves us from the end of the world wrath. You will not be here in my opinion, or the Apostle Paul's, <laughs> apparently, at the end of the world, when all hell breaks loose, he says, Lot, come up here because I can't do a thing. I cannot do one thing until you're safe. And when you're safe, hmm. Wonderful thing about the end of the world. <laughs> First of all, it's the beginning of ours, new one is that people, even when we are removed, people will come to know the Lord. And when he returns with the church and the hosts of heaven, he sets up an eternal rule over those who have survived the great tribulation or have been martyred, who have not taken the mark of the beast. And so there's mercy still, even then, right up to the end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, for your word. Just let it cut like a sword, as a two-edged sword, straight to the core of who we are. Show us what we, each one of us, need to hear. Put it into practice and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.